welcome to the House of Horrors podcast, where each week we dissect problems real estate investors have faced, how they navigated it, and of course, what you can do to avoid ending up in their shoes. If you would have told me that I could get sued for an accident on someone else's property, I wouldn't have believed you until it happened. Yes, today is the episode many of you have asked for, the other time I got sued. And if you've joined my free workshop in the past, you've learned about a situation with a contractor that was the first time that we got sued. And that lawsuit was baseless. And it seemed like such a freak incident that we really didn't do much internally to change our processes to prevent something like that from happening again. But this second lawsuit was the incident that quite literally made me go on a career change from being a litigator and a criminal prosecutor to becoming a real estate attorney. And I will warn you, I did drop a four-letter word here and there throughout this episode because it still feels so raw in many ways. If you're listening to this with the kiddos around, maybe pop the headphones in. I don't want to offend anyone. You have been warned. But I felt so hurt by the system, by my lawyers, by this whole like investing business. By the time that we got sued twice, that those feelings, when I rehash them now, just they come all back up again. And I was, it was truly this moment where I realized that if this had happened to us two times within a few years that the legal strategy we were relying upon just it wasn't pulling its weight. And I didn't want to just protect myself from lawsuits anymore. I wanted to avoid this headache, this nightmare, this this stress, the whole entire hassle, all of it. I, I wanted to never deal with this again. And so I want you to learn from one of our early mistakes so you can avoid this very personal house of horrors. And my goal for you in this episode is for you to learn three things. The first is what to do if and when you get sued. Second up is when you should open up new LLCs. I get this question all the time. It's like, when do I need another one? We'll tackle that a bit here. And then third is how to fill in the gaps that traditional legal services leave open. Because this is how I felt at the time was um, a hole in our Um, our legal strategy because we were overly reliant on services that law firms and lawyers were providing. And so let's dive into this lawsuit. I remember it like it was yesterday, but it was probably it's like six to seven years ago at this point. And I came home from work and my husband, Navy, was sitting at the dining room table with the mail um, and he had this look on his face. And I like wasn't sure what was going on, but I, I could tell it wasn't just, you know, junk mail he had in his hands. And then he handed me this big envelope and it was stamped hand delivery. And I just knew, I knew what it was. And, you know, I wasn't a full-time real estate attorney at this point, but I was a litigator and I knew what I was holding and we got served. And naturally I got really ticked off at him because he's the hands-on guy. He's the property management and really takes the lead on running our investing business. I had a day job. His is the real estate. And so I assumed he screwed something up and I'm not proud of how I reacted at him. Um, But we weren't so far off like time-wise from that other lawsuit resolving that, you know, just I wasn't going to take another lawsuit with like any semblance of grace at this point. We had just wrapped that one up um, and I wasn't recovered and I was not prepared to to walk back into a situation like this. And eventually I felt bad for my re- reaction as I, you know, discovered the facts of what had really happened here. Um, and I read the complaint from the plaintiff's lawyer and I had this like sudden clarity to what was happening and what needed to happen. And essentially what was alleged is that this woman who I later heard has a very convenient history of slipping and falling all around Philadelphia, but she fell in front of our friend's property. And if 
you're now thinking like, what does this have to do with you then? Uh, let me tell you, I was now wondering the same thing. <laughs> I saw the address. I'm like, that's not one of our properties. And then I got to the part where the complaint mentioned that we were the property manager of the building and had a duty to keep the premises clear from snow and ice. And at that point, I looked up from reading and I looked at AB and I said, excuse me, we are the what? <laughs> and he assured me that there was like no arrangement, like spoken or otherwise with his friend whose building this was. Like we knew whose building it was. We knew who the owner was. It was, you know, one of our friends was also named in the lawsuit. All he did, he said, was he showed the property for him while he was away for the summer. And so he, you know, created the rental listing and, you know, put his phone number up so he could do the showings. And that was that was it. That was the connection to this property uh, for us. And so, you know, what I'm imagining here is you've got this plaintiff's lawyer and he's Googling the property address and just came up with this, you know, expired rental ad and skip traced the phone number and then added us to the lawsuit. Lovely, fan freaking tastic. And so now here's this lawsuit of let's call her Jane Doe versus our friends LLC and us personally. And so what do we do? We called our insurance company first, which is always my first recommendation, your first step um, when you get served with a lawsuit. And, and let's go through these steps real quick is that, you know, first I say call your insurance company. And after that, I advise you to keep your mouth shut. Don't post in Facebook groups asking what other investors did in this situation. Don't go calling that person who's suing you. If you know them personally, just keep your mouth shut. And from there, I suggest getting everything you have in connection with this situation collected so that you can turn it over to your attorney for their review and let them decide what is relevant or not. That's not your job to figure that out. They will. And they might even give you a list of things to compile. But if you know that there's text messages or emails or pictures or whatever out there, just start building up your own file so you can turn it over. And the last thing I suggest doing when you get sued is doing only what your attorney advises you to do in connection with the case. Trust their advice and don't try to steer the cart. Ask, of course, you know, questions, even critical questions to understand their process and their strategy, but don't go off the script, even if you think it would help your case. But let's get back to that first step of calling your insurance company first, because at my firm, I was, you know, of course, I was flattered that my clients would often call me first, but I tell them, hey, you may actually have a lawyer at no cost to you through your insurance. So call them. And if not, you can give me a call back. And so make sure that's your first call before you plop down a retainer with an attorney. And you do not, in fact, I think you should not plead your case with anyone with your insurance company who is not your insurance provided attorney because there is no attorney client privilege with them. There's just no privilege with your insurance company. And those calls could be recorded and turned over. That first call that you make should really just be you telling them there you need to start a claim, you need to get an assigned attorney, and they will likely ask for the complaint and begin their own like internal review process on their end to ensure that it's actually a covered type of claim before assigning you an attorney. And that may take a few days, it may take a week or so. Um, and you need to let that process happen and be patient and keep your mouth shut. <laughs> As you can tell, keep your mouth shut is a big, big piece of this. Um, but for us, when we made that phone call, we only got bad news because apparently this was a business we had and allegedly it was a property management business and it wasn't covered by our insurance. We were covered for our properties, but not to work on third parties' properties. And our homeowner's insurance, like on our personal home, wasn't covering this either because it was a business activity. Even though we didn't consider it a business, we just considered it, you know, helping a friend out. And so we were exposed. It was lovely, absolutely lovely. And, um, you know, for us, it was out of pocket for a lawyer. Fantastic. And we thought that, you know, 
since that there was no property management agreement, as is you know typical, like typically when you have a property manager, there's some sort of written agreement involved. It was going to be you know clear to everyone involved that we weren't really the property manager. We just had our phone number on the rental listing. Um, but soon we learned and realized that the burden was on us to prove that we were not, and we found that we were in this position where it was really hard to show something that doesn't exist. It really was just like a catch twenty two. Um, thankfully, we had our friend on our side, and we asked him and his lawyer to prepare an affidavit where he would state that we were not his property manager and we were just helping him out showing the property months before and we really had no obligation uh, beyond rental showings. There was no uh, repairs or, you know, snow removal here. Uh, That was our responsibility. And we essentially were not at fault. He was saying, you know, that responsibility for any sort of snow or ice stayed with him. And he did that, which was amazing. And we sent the affidavit over to the plaintiff's attorney. And we thought that that would give us a quick dismissal because the plaintiff would still have the property owner to sue and his insurance was still involved and that we could just be out of this. But no, (laughs) no, no, they still wanted to depose my husband. And depositions are recorded interviews, essentially, from the other side's attorney. It's like you're being direct and cross-examined at the same time. And yes, you have your attorney there, but it's, you know, it's something that you typically prep for for hours with your attorney. And then the actual interview can last hours as well. And so do the math, you're thinking, you know, in my head, I'm like, okay, hourly billing, it's just, the bill is just racking up at this point. And, you know, especially because I've been in depositions where they've taken days and days and days, and so they can get extraordinarily expensive out of pocket. And a deposition is a sworn statement, just like in like in court when you're in front of a judge, and it can be used as evidence in the case against you, especially if you change your story uh, down the line. And so they're big deals. They're big freaking deals. And if you say the wrong thing, you can really make matters far worse for yourself. But essentially, you're going in blind. Like They don't send you a list of questions they're going to ask you in advance. You don't know what they're going to say. Um, And so your attorney will work with you to make sure that you're familiar with the facts, um, especially if a lot of time has gone by, like if this is a situation that happened and, you know, one, two, three, four years ago. Um, and so you'll review all of the documents that may come up and you may get questioned about. And you'll also go through some hypothetical situations and questions that may come up so you know how to respond to them properly and within the, you know, the scope as well. But it's it's stressful, but thankfully it was something that we weathered. And after that, eventually the case was dismissed against us, but not before we were out of pocket to our attorney, thousands and thousands of dollars. And so even though it was a win in the eyes of the law and in the court, it really didn't feel like a win to us. It just felt scary and exhausting and stressful and yeah, still really expensive. And as I'm recording this, like I can feel my body tensing up, like my shoulders are creeping up to my shoulders. And I, it's, it's not a good feeling. (laughs) And it's years and years later. Hey there, it's Bonnie. If you're looking to protect yourself, minimize wasted time and money, and confidently scale your real estate portfolio on a solid legal foundation, then I want to invite you to my free on-demand legal workshop, The Three Legal Myths Real Estate Investors Cannot Afford to Follow, and of course, what to do instead. It's free, so get registered now at bonniegallum.com workshop. 
looking back at this moment where things really did start to change in our business and I began to create the legal strategy for our business that I now teach other investors inside of Landlord Law School. But we had spent the last several years building and just growing and doing what our lawyer said. You know, we would create new LLCs and we were investing in good leases and we were going by the book with all the rules in the city of Philadelphia. And then we got hit by two lawsuits in fairly short order. And I just thought to myself, like, man, it's got to be better than this. Like, it, this can't be it. We can't be paying for all of this asset protection, all of this legal stuff, and then still be dealing with this shit. It was just unfathomable to me. And that's really when I personally started diving deep into our investing business. And sure, like I was there for the house hunting and the rehabs, but the back end, I had really left that to my husband, who was doing things really as he just learned it from other investors. And at the time, the back end of that type of work was things like bookkeeping and paying the bills and responding to repairs and getting the apartments rented. Like it wasn't something that I thought involved strategy or frankly, like a lawyer's involvement. Like it would seem like a one person job. Um, and that one person seemed to know what they were doing until I saw that the reason, you know, through my eyes as a lawyer, that we were in both of these lawsuits was due to a lack of writing and that we were too comfortable with our friends and our contractors and our neighbors and our tenants, our partners, all of these people, because the reality is, is, is it was fine and it was easy until it wasn't, until there was a lawsuit and it, and it felt like we were getting screwed. But we decided after that, no more. Mr. Nice Guy wasn't going to go away. That's just who we are as people. But he wasn't going to take the convenient way anymore. We were going to take the way that maybe took an extra step to ensure that, you know, things didn't unravel or backfire in either way, in either direction. And that's really how I began to formulate and create what is now ultimately my three-part asset protection framework. for, And the first part of that three parts is intentional planning. The second being sustainable growth. The third is to preserve wealth. And I teach a lot about that last part on preserving wealth in my free asset protection workshop, which you can join me over on my website. Um, But the first two planning and growth really do have to come first. And I want to talk about that part here in this episode, because for us, a mistake was not recognizing that we had created another business activity just by showing a friend's apartment one summer. Um, One that was out of the scope of, you know, the business activities of uh, that we were typically doing, but it was outside the business activities, our legal plan was designed to cover defensively, and therefore it left us holding the bag. And so we weren't intentionally planning our actions. And I see this situation pop up all the time, not just with like property management, but maybe you're handy and you do, you know, work on your own property and then a friend asks you to do work on theirs, or maybe you're also now providing real estate coaching to other investors. Like this type of situation where you get these tangential businesses to real estate investing can pop up a lot of different ways. And the rule of thumb I like to go by in terms of like, when do you need another LLC is like one per business activity. You can have one for rentals and maybe a multiple for rentals. You could have a flipping LLC. You could have an outside contracting LLC. And of course, property management LLC, which is something that we now have in our business. And it, you know, it goes without saying that each of these businesses needs to be treated like their own business. That means proper bookkeeping, insurance, and the rest of the, you know, the offensive asset protection uh, tools that I harp on all the time. And yes, this stuff does take money and time and effort, but businesses are designed to make money after putting in, you know, money, time, and effort. 
And so if you don't have this whole business plan or a line of work waiting for you, perhaps saying no to the odd job or odd work that leaves you exposed is the easiest and best way out. Or, you know, the alternative being you just do it as a gift or a favor for a friend. Um, It doesn't always have to be transactional or a business activity. And that brings me to the second part of the solid foundation framework, which is sustainable scaling. Because for us, we were scaling great, like the scale part got it down. Um, But we were getting way too big for our britches. And we knew the real estate stuff well, which is what we thought we needed to know. But we didn't know the business of our real estate well. And for one, we were following what we thought was common practice in real estate, like essentially flying by the seat of our pants with everyone who we worked with. And we had, you know, our good names on the line, our reputation. And we thought, you know, so do they. And that now we see that those are famous last words. <laughs> but we never really slowed down enough to understand that what we were building and had built and, you know, how to optimize and secure it along the way, like in our heads, it was just burr, 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 burr until the cows come home. And yeah, like a lot of what I teach around sustainable scaling isn't just around the legal protection stuff, but also around, you know, time management and finding efficiency is because I believe that's all part of asset protection too, because you can, you know, save all the time and make all the money or save and make all the money in the world. But if you don't have a life doing it, then like, what's the point? Like I see time even more so than money as the most valuable resource. And that was very much, this lawsuit was very much a tipping point for us in our business as well from that respect, because we knew that we needed to start delegating more. It was just eating up too much of our time. But then we also had this fear, like, how are we supposed to do that if we're getting sued like we did last time? And so, you know, how can we streamline and automate to shave off hours of the property management stuff? Um, And ultimately, that's kind of gotten me to this point of, you know, where I am today and a lot about what I teach about. And I think you could probably reflect if you've been around here for a while, like, okay, like I can now see how these situations that Bonnie has gone through really shape the way that I look at legal, because this is the stuff that I experienced as a real estate investor before I ever became a real estate attorney. And it just didn't make sense to me. I mean, I'm one of those people who's probably overly logical to like a deficit of like my like personal intuition of what other people are, you know, feeling and experiencing. Um, But from the outside, I'm just like, it doesn't make sense. I'm spending money and I'm still losing money. And so if I'm going to be driven by math and by that type of analytical reasoning, then my legal strategy has to make sense. And it's not making sense from a number standpoint. Um, you know, guys, being a landlord has been a journey. I've had moments like the one I shared today where, you know, I've wanted to pull my hair out. And there's also been a lot of moments where I'm really proud of this business that we've, you know, made, whether it's through being able to help people in difficult housing situations. I'm really proud of the way that we've worked with our tenants through the coronavirus pandemic. Um, and, you know, I'm also really proud of this business that we've been able to make that gives us a lot more time freedom and flexibility, which has made both of us a lot, um, you know, happier, both professionally and personally. Um, in review, I I want you to make sure that you're following the right steps when you get sued, because it, it's not really an even an if you're in this game long enough which we all want to be in this game long term, then the odds just frankly aren't in your favor (laughs) to come through without some battle wounds. And this will be the key, you know, to getting your defense off to the right start. Um, And 
at the end of the day, though, I, I still truly believe that the best defense is a good offense. We just don't want to be in these situations to begin with. It's stressful, you know, like I said, to this day to think about these lawsuits. Um, but to be able to create that good offense, we need to figure out what on earth you're doing, where on earth you're going, and then clean up that house, tighten up that ship. Um because that'll be the best way to not just increase your profits, but to make sure that you can stand the test of time and shake off these problems before they pop up in the first place. And then finally, I really hope you learned something about how lawsuits pan out and how even a win can sometimes feel like a loss, sadly. Um, most importantly, I hope that one of those lessons helps prevent a lawsuit from happening to you. If you liked this episode, please let me know by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It would mean the world to me. And make sure you're subscribed so that you don't miss out on any future episodes of the House of Horrors podcast. And now that you know what the solid foundation framework entails and you're thinking to yourself, perhaps, what should I do? I've got free checklists for you to have on hand to help you kind of navigate action steps to start putting this stuff in place. And you can download my free ultimate legal checklist at bonniegallum.com slash checklist. That is all for this week's episode. Thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you here same time, same place. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for listening to the House of Horrors podcast. Make sure to follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. You can also check out all of our podcast episodes, show notes, links, and more at bonniegallum.com forward slash podcast. You can learn more about legally protecting your portfolio and take my free legal workshop, The Three Legal Myths, Preventing You from Securing and Scaling Your Portfolio, and of course, what to do instead at bonniegallum.com. And to stay connected and follow along, follow me on Instagram at bonniegallumesq and send me a DM to say hi. Thank you for listening to the Good Bones Real Estate Investing Podcast. Make sure you're subscribed on your favorite podcast player to make sure you don't miss out on any future episodes. Now this lawyer's got to drop the fine print real quick. This podcast is educational and not intended to be legal tax or investing advice for you. Please speak with a local professional for specific advice unique to you and your situation. That's it for this episode. Bye for now.